Uh, this morning we're reading from the English Standard Version, uh, John chapter 5, verse 1 to 18, and then Les will read verse 19 to 29. The healing at the pool on the Sabbath. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame and paralysed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Yes, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not show who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, then nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. From verse 19 of chapter 5 of John. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son, does not honour the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who live, who hear, will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Yes, it's, uh, it's interesting about having a senior service and it's an honour to be uh, able to preach um, at such a service. Uh, I was feeling a little bit senior yesterday until my wife reminded me of something. We're at a, uh, a grandchild, my son's second daughter's first birthday in Bendigo yesterday. And uh, uh, I don't think, as I was saying to some of you, I don't think she really understood what was going on at one year old, but uh, all, all the grandparents were there, parents, aunties, uncles, and uh, also then there were grand, great-grandparents there from, uh, who came out from America, they've been living here for a while, and so there were all this, this geological tree. And then I was reminded that the great-grandparents, that there's still... A, a mother of one of those in the States, but she couldn't be there. And suddenly it dawned on me that that makes me middle-aged. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you, know, uh, you know, seniors card, forget it. <laughs> um, but it's all relative. This is uh, a passage that uh, I've uh, struggled with over this week. I've walked around with it, and uh, uh, it, it's a profound passage. There's so much happening here. I don't know how many times I've read it and just sort of skated across the surface and not realised what was really going on. I know that it's a miracle story, but uh, this is a very sad story in many ways. We've got to understand that when we read uh, John's Gospel. Uh, we misunderstand. It's going to be difficult to understand these, this book if we think that John's purpose is just showing us that Jesus could do miracles. Jesus is powerful. Wow. That's not his purpose. The purpose of these miracles, these signs, is to point out who Jesus is and what he's about. It points out who he is, that his identity is much more than just a miracle worker or a prophet and that he's about a new covenant coming and this is what he has stepped into. And so all the miracles say something to contrast Jesus from those institutions in the old covenant to basically say the prototype is over, here is the reality. Shadow has gone, the day has dawned, and this is Christ's day. This is what these signs are about. We're also going to have difficulty understanding John's Gospel if we just focus on the punchy narratives uh, and we interpret his addresses separately. 
the meaning of those addresses is coloured by what has just happened in the action. It's a little bit of the reverse of the way movies work. You know, you sort of get to the chase scene and all the meaningful stuff is already over. It's yet to happen here as we look at this, uh, this passage here. So uh, we misunderstand the addresses of Jesus if we don't read them in the light of the narratives, the stories that have preceded them. And we start this picture here that Jesus is down in Jerusalem. Now, remember, Jerusalem is the capital, not just politically, but theologically. It's the centre point for the Jew of the whole world. This is the holy city. And he's down at the temple site, down in that area, which is the holiest place on the planet. And uh, here he comes across anything but a holy scene. He is walking around this pool near the sheep gate called Bethesda. It's, uh, we're told it's got five colonnades or five porticos. And there, as Jesus walks into this scene, it's wall-to-wall impotence. There are people lying around who have been sick, who are infirmed, and they are lying there with a modicum of hope that something might happen. This is the first world worldview And a worldview is simply the lens through which a person understands their reality. We all have a worldview. We all understand and interpret what happens to us through a worldview. And the worldview that these sort of people had was a sort of popular religion worldview. That is, they had a lot of superstition mixed up with a lot of a little bit of theology. And it's possible that they were lying by this pool because this pool, we're told, is uh, connected by plumbing to the plumbing in the temple. And the washings of purification would end up in this pool as priests would wash their vestments, their garments, etc. And occasionally, through the day, there'd be a little bubble up as more water came in. this pool and I think maybe it's that these people have been brought up with the stories about the prophet Ezekiel about the new temple which this one was it was a new model but Ezekiel's temple is a a visionary temple you actually couldn't build it architecture is impossible but he has this in chapter 47 this vision of waters flowing out of the temple drifting down and the further you go the deeper they get and it's a picture of the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit in pictorial terms in temple terms and this has sort of been mixed up and the occasional placebo effect of someone getting some relief from their ailment as they would drop into that pool keeps alive the mythology it's like a sacred site it's like Lourdes today It's one of these special places. And these people have that sort of mindset. They're in a pitiful state. And as their hope is just about burnt down to the bottom of the candle, Jesus steps in. We're told this is a feast day. Usually when we're told of a feast in John's Gospel, it's because the writer is going to show that Jesus is contrasting his ministry to that particular feast. But we're not told what feast this is because Jesus isn't 
fulfilling a particular hope of a particular feast. This is about Jesus and the temple. And the difference between temple religion, highbrow religion, central religion, and Jesus' idea of worshipping God. And Jesus comes up to a particular fellow and we read in uh, verses 5 and 6 that this guy had been an invalid for 38 years. Now it strikes me as a little odd that this fellow has wanted to get into that pool for 38 years and he's never managed it. And yet he's survived. Someone is supporting this guy in his invalid state and he's managed to stay impotent. And I think that has something to do with the reason why when Jesus goes up to this fellow who's been there 38 years and he asks him a dumb question. He says, do you want to get well? I mean, for goodness sake, this is, <laughs> you know, what do you reckon I'm here for? You can imagine what is going on in that guy's mind as this complete stranger probably walks up to him and says, do you want to get well? And uh, yeah, the guy must need his head read. And you're asking me to... And the fellow focuses in on the problem that he has and he externalises the problem. The problem I have is that I can't get into the pool first and so the blessing's gone by the time I get near the edge. He sees his problems are about the environment around him. But Jesus internalises the problem with a question about his will. What do you really want to have happen here? And that's the sort of question that Jesus poses to each of us when it comes to salvation. You know, you'd think salvation would be a good ticket to have. But just like healing, Jesus just doesn't bowl in there, holus bolus, and ride roughshod over the dignity of that human and over their will. He asks for permission to do his ministry. Likewise with salvation, Jesus, he comes and addresses us with an invitation that's too good to refuse. But that doesn't mean he's going to take away our dignity. He addresses us with the question, what do you really want to have happen? It's the same in salvation. And that's the parallel that's working through this story. At another level, 38 years is one of those Joe and I details that shouldn't escape us. Because this is a picture of Israel. They are in the desert for 38 years. As this guy has been impotent, so Jesus and John are saying, Israel, for all its history, is still sick. It is lying there and it needs a saviour. And the saviour has walked on the stage. And so Jesus comes to this guy and he says, Are you sure you want to be well? Good question, because it's going to cost you. Whenever a sick person in a counselling room or a surgery has that opportunity to answer that question, they have to weigh up whether it's going to be worth giving up all the sympathy 
and all the attention and a whole identity that's taken 38 years to forge. And Jesus is saying, are you ready to give up all that and take on freedom? Because freedom will come with a cost. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord, Saviour and friend, then let me just say, it's going to cost you. It isn't a day on the beach to become a Christian. And that's what I want to talk about that day, this morning, as we look at this. Well, Jesus gives his fellow a command, a threefold command, and heaven responds to that command. The man sets himself on his feet and Jesus says, take up your, your stretcher and go and walk. He doesn't give him a lot of instructions about what to find down the road. Where, what's he going to experience? Just go and walk. And the guy goes off. Well, verse 9, he's no sooner changed his lifestyle dramatically. You know, it's astonishing. You wouldn't have a lot of muscle tone if you lay on your back for 38 years. But this fellow finds he is equipped to do that walking. He has got all the power he needs to move and to start a new life. And he does and he heads out. It's just the same when you become a Christian. You might look down the track and think, I'm not much chop and I haven't got much spiritual muscle tone, but Jesus equips us sufficiently for the journey that lies ahead. He never spells out what you're going to run into. I could not read my life story from the age of 20. I couldn't believe the things that have happened in my life since then. And I thank God that he didn't tell me it at that time. But he gave me the equipment to walk it. And that I am sure. That is the way he deals with us when salvation comes knocking. No sooner is this fellow gone out of this place, isn't it striking? He walks straight into the Torah police. <laughs> he walks straight into the Jews, as John calls them. These aren't just citizens of Israel. These are the highbrow establishment temple people. Rabbis, lawyers, theologians, experts, but people with an antennae for Torah, the law. People whose whole life is about walking under the law. The Jews call it halakha. These are halakhic experts. And they know that the law of God prohibits work on a Sabbath. They don't see a man healed walking. They see a violator of the law walking. They see a man proceeding in the holiest place on the planet, blatantly breaking the Sabbath. Now, let's just understand, if these people, they were very tender to the fact that they've been through a theological history, we should have some sympathy for them. I mean, it was Nehemiah, the great prophet of God, who brought this, uh, this city back into existence, and, and he himself punished those severely who traded on the Sabbath, who tried to forget the Sabbath. He wouldn't have a bar of them. And that had sort of grown into a tradition. So by the time we're talking here, these people were teaching that you couldn't even carry a brooch on your coat on the Sabbath or a pin. 
You couldn't wear your false teeth down the street. If you had a wooden leg, you couldn't walk with it because it's carrying something. If your horse had a blanket on its back, oh, you could be stoned for that in this place. And this is intense time of a festival when these guys have their spiritual antennae right up for such blatant things and they're standing out a head and shoulders above this sea of impotence and sickness is a healthy man violating the sabbath that's all they see because that's their worldview that's their lenses that's their cosmos that's where they live that's how they interpret this this is highbrow religion popular superstition has run into highbrow religion and Jesus is wedged in the middle of that you know it's interesting that uh, probably as a pastor the hardest thing I think to deal with in my experience as a pastor is saints who regress I can remember a guy George who uh, came to the Lord dramatically in later life and uh, George had lived his life as totally disregarding God. He was a nominal Catholic. He'd had all the rights and that sort of thing, but didn't mean a cracker to him. And it was really strangely through a loving act of our youth group in cleaning up his house that he became a, uh, a Christian and uh, was baptised to profess his faith and um, you know, walked his, involved in our seniors ministry for many years and then struck down with a stroke very quickly I went to see him as uh, I liked George and we'd got on very well but I'd seen him declining in recent days and I went and saw him in hospital and one of his neighbours was there and she was so concerned because George was churning he was full of fear and it was so sad to see this man who'd been a beacon of faith regressing to his nominal Catholicism and wishing that I was actually a real priest who could do some magic to get him over the line and he was petrified of the hour. I was ruined by that moment. There's nothing I could say could get through to him. I couldn't remind him of his baptism. I couldn't remind him of his faith. And somehow the years had obliterated the gospel out of his memory bank. That is a very tough thing to deal with. You do your best. You trust God is doing his. Paul himself talks about the same thing in Galatians 4. I'd had my finger in the Bible a little while ago, but now I can't even... Oh, I found it again. There we go. And Paul says... He reminds the Galatians, formerly when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now you've come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. How can you turn again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to once more become? That's a, that's a regression story, and Paul has this in several of his books. He's disappointed that people forget the Christ that has saved them. And here he uses an interesting phrase because these people were reverting to Judaism. It's important to wonder this story here and he calls their reversion a reversion to elementary principles or you might have a version that says 
the powers or the authorities. It's very important teaching in the New Testament, this stuff about the powers and the authorities. Because in highbrow religion, these people believe, these temple professionals, that they, their theology, held the cosmos together. That those purity rites that happened, those washings in the temple, the sacrifices and the liturgy and the prayers and the abstinences were all holding heaven back from destroying the sinful world. And that teaching is Paul called the elementary teachings or the fundamentals or the powers, the stoichia in Greek. And Paul is talking about this stupid reversion to stoichia, this teaching about the cosmos. And you see, that is why the Jews are so hot on Jesus. And they're firstly hot on this guy because he's not only threatening his own salvation, he's threatening the salvation of Israel. And if there's no Israel, there's no cosmos tomorrow. That's how important their worldview is to them. These guys aren't just wall-to-wall hypocrites. These people see that they're doing us a service when Jesus comes into their world. Well, it's fascinating that if we jump down... They say to this man, well, okay, this is why the fellow himself says, I'm not doing this of my own accord. He made me do it. He, and Jesus is by now gone. He's disappeared into the crowd. They said, who was he? What was his name? Let's get him. (laughs) And he says, I don't know. It it was too quick. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus knows the game and he's vanished into the crowd. But he's got unfinished business. And he ferrets his way through that crowd and he finds this once lame man now and where is the guy interesting detail he's in the temple you see his reaction this fellow thinks that now i better get religious now that i've been healed i owe god something i'm going to become religious i mean i've been waiting to become a full citizen of israel for 38 years because lame people couldn't go near the temple but today i can today i have my seniors pass to move into the temple and i can hobnob it with the hoi polloi and the rest And, uh, you know, he's been looking forward to this time. So he's made a beeline to the temple and Jesus knew he would be there. He hasn't gone home to his family. He hasn't gone to the market. He hasn't gone to buy some new clothes, new set of thongs. He's just gone to the temple because that is the holy place. His mindset is becoming like the Jews around him. And Jesus finds him and he says, we haven't finished our ministry here. And it's fascinating. He says to the guy, in verse 15, or 14, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And right at that point, the guy, did you notice, he doesn't say, sure, I'll do that. He hives out of there and goes and dobs on Jesus. 
He goes back to the Jews because he needs to get them off his back. He thinks he could be stoned if he doesn't turn in Jesus. This is not a very impressive day for this man. It tells us three things. It's an incredible point in the turning point in this story. First thing it tells us is just the love of Jesus. He knew this would happen. This is a point where Jesus goes from being a popular prophet to being a marked man. And he flipped that trigger himself the moment he commanded this guy to walk. He chose an act of compassion on an, on an ingrate to be the moment when he would head for Calvary and he'd have the whole Jewish hierarchy against him. That's the sort of Jesus we worship. If I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down blessing. That's what he's saying. This also shows us something else that's very important theologically. You see Jesus' priority? Jesus says to this guy, you've been healed, but you're not saved. Healing is not salvation. You are still vulnerable. Now, it's a wonderful thing that God does heal today. You're looking at a person that can testify to the answered prayer of his parents. I should not be here. Twice in my life, doctors have written me off. Prayer of my parents has brought me back. That's for another day. But being prayed for, being healed, is not the same as being safe with God. It is critical we understand that. Lest we get our priorities terribly wrong. Jesus warns this fellow that he must avoid the worst sickness, sin. Because sin brings the wrath of God about him and that cannot be healed. Eternity is forever when you're outside the salvation of God. We've got to understand our priorities in church. There's a lot of excitement today about healing in the church. Good, let's get excited about healing, why don't we? But it's not Jesus' priority. There is a higher priority, not our bodily wellness. He's going to give us new bodies soon. And sometimes in his providence he does things in the present tense. But... The priority is that we're right with God. This fellow, you see, what Jesus has done, he has set up this whole situation, he's walked on the scene and he's walked and he's done things that have totally violated the Jewish teaching about the Sabbath and he said an alternative to the temple is here. You don't need to sit and just be purged by temple waters. It won't cut the deal anymore. This is a new day and there's a new temple here there's a new way of dealing with sin there's a new way of coming close to God in a way you can't with the temple and the sadness for Jesus with this guy it's like the sadness I had with George is that this fellow is trying to dig up the corpse of temple religion when the author of life is right before him and he's gone and abandoned the author of life in favour of the old paradigm which Jesus has just wiped out. 
And so Jesus is saying to this guy, you better sin no more because you are in a salvation historical time warp here and there is no covering for sin. So sin no more because worse will befall you. You see, without a saviour, without a temple, we face God direct. We don't stand a chance. This guy didn't stand a chance and his healing wasn't going to do him a cracker of good. The day he would face God, he might have 20-20 vision, a great set of pegs, but he would be a condemned sinner. Let's get our priorities right. Let's understand the number one sickness is sin. The call to believe in Jesus is not a call to believe in miracles. The call to believe in Jesus is not a call to get religious. It's a call to get righteous and to be right with God. Well, the Jews can't bear this. And uh, they see that this Jesus has violated the Sabbath. So they start persecuting him. We're not sure what period we're talking about here. We're not sure what they did. But basically, these blacklisted. And they're spreading the word that this guy is a heretic, he can't be trusted, and they're making life pretty painful and miserable to Jesus. And Jesus... He's not embarrassed about what he's done. He knows his mission. He doesn't go and hide in the crowd. And Jesus in verse 17 says, um, Oh, you're worried about this? Well, basically my father and I, we are both implicated in this. We've been working on this sort of reclamation program of the cosmos ever since the fall of man. This is what we've been doing. This is our whole universal quest and we're determined to finish the course, the Father and I. The Jews go, oh, if it was warm already, it's become white hot all of a sudden and the atmosphere is just incendiary. They can't believe their ears. Jesus can see their faces. He can see the scandal written right across their brows. And now it's moved from persecution in verse 18. Now he must go. He must be killed. It's either us and the cosmos and salvation of Israel or Jesus. Simple decision. He must go. And they make that decision. This is a turning point in the gospel. There is no return from here. Jesus must die. But not just because he's breaking the Sabbath, but he calls God his own father. He makes himself equal with God. Anyone from a Jehovah's Witness background here this morning, read those words. Jesus made himself equal with God. And so Jesus says to him, verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. Jesus goes into a spill, and we haven't got time to deal with this in detail, simply to point out, that Jesus is trying to point out to them that the choice that they face is not Jesus versus God. It is Jesus versus the temple system. In fact, it's God and Jesus on one side versus highbrow temple religion. That's the enemy. That's all he's trying to point out through this passage. You've got to keep us, me and the Father, together. I'm not going to resile from what I said about me and the Father being equal or the implication therein. 
Truly I say to you, the Son can't do a thing of his own cord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And Jesus isn't saying, I'm just trying to imitate the Father. He's saying, it is theologically and personally impossible for me to go against the will of the Father. This is the beginnings of what becomes the doctrine of the Trinity. This is the doctrine which we should all confess. It's the key theological word is interpenetration. Interpenetration of the persons of the Trinity. The interpenetration is that whatever the Father is doing, the Son is doing. All persons of the Trinity are involved. They interpenetrate the ministries and the workings of the other persons. That's not just the Father does this bit of salvation, the Son does this bit and the Spirit does that bit. That's not the doctrine of the Trinity. It's all three persons are always there and involved in each other's ministry. And that's what Jesus is confessing here. He says, for instance, there are three things here. Verse 21, the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life. Second point, point 22, the Father judges no one, there's no tension here. He's given all judgment to the Son. You know God as judge? Well, I'm the judge, there's no tension here. And verse 23, that all might honour the Son just as they honour the Father. In fact, let me put it in case you missed it, whoever does not honour the Son, myself, he's saying, does not honour the Father who sent him. You, you cannot drive a wedge of Torah between the Father and the Son. You cannot put the temple between the Father and the Son. We are working as one here in the life-giving, in the judging, in the saving work of God. And I get the same honours. And God is not threatened by you honouring me as him. Imagine trying to convince the rabbis of that fact at that moment. But Jesus doesn't go on the back foot. He's not embarrassed by his identity. He just confesses it straight out. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him, you see, it's two of us involved here, when you hear my message, and you believe the Father. <laughs> and when you do that, who sent me, you have eternal life. He, he puts it in the third person, he has eternal life. Those of you who went to school long ago to do grammar, what tense is the word has? Psst, psst, psst. It's interesting, isn't it? Past, present, we'll have a vote. <laughs> That's how you decide things in this area. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really present because of what has happened already. You can say that the moment you felt your heart warmed by the gospel message that Jesus died for you and you trusted that that was God's message coming to you, despite whoever the preacher was, could have been a friend over a cup of coffee, the moment you did that, you gained a gift which cannot be broken. You gained eternal life. How long is eternal life? Pretty long? Do you know eternal life comes in bulky quantities? big bulky quantities that you cannot get your arms around they go it goes and goes and goes if life that jesus gives is eternal you can't lose life that's what he's saying the moment isn't it an amazing thing the moment you simply said yes to jesus 
I trust you. Thank you, Father. That moment, your destiny was sealed. Signed, sealed, delivered, because the gift he gave in return never stops. You can't lose it. And that's what he wants you to know this morning. That's the difference between Jesus and temple religion. Temple religion, you don't know where you stand. You have to depend on authorities. You have to depend on, you know, was I baptised with enough water? Have I confessed my sins? Have I been sincere? Have I fasted? Have I walked enough miles? Have I crawled upon enough glass? But that's not the religion Jesus instituted here. His was an introduction of a gift of eternal life the moment you believed. And maybe you haven't yet come to that point. But that's the gift that awaits if you're yet to believe. You gain that moment in the present and forever a life that cannot be destroyed. It is eternal. It's from heaven. It's for you. And that is what Jesus is saying. tell you a story about my father to finish and I know I tell a few stories about my father you're getting the impression it's a bit moi pa <laughs> but uh, that verse is the verse upon which my father gave his life to the Lord in 1949 the context was a street in Port Melbourne he was a plumber's apprentice, 19 years old. He gambled every weekend in a card school, which I could take you and show you in Port Melbourne, where all the notorious criminals gathered of the stevedoring industry to whom his family was connected. Now, my father had an interesting brain. No one had ever picked up on the fact that he's a mathematical genius. And he could remember numbers, he could do long multiplication in his head easily. He knew about probability, but he didn't never heard the word. And he'd worked out in this card school who were the, the, the dealers you could trust because he knew the odds of a run coming up or a set of three. He, he could play poker because he, he knew the odds and he stuck to the odds. And weekend by weekend, he'd start playing on Saturday afternoon, play right through Saturday night, right through Sunday afternoon, and he'd go home weekend, weekend out with a wad of bills in his pocket. It was only going to be a matter of time when he would be winning too much for his own good. And this particular Sunday afternoon, a couple of MBI, that's now Melbourne School of Theology, couple of MBI evangelism class students walked down this street, this back street, into a dark alley to find this 19-year-old playing cricket up against a, st a, a stump in the street. They said, sorry to interrupt the game. <laughs> he said, that's okay, what do you want? They said, you believe in the Old Testament? He says, oh, no, no, I'm not into that. And he'd been to Sunday school once, he knew there were two testaments. <laughs> he said, you believe the New Testament? They said, oh yes, that's the one I believe in. <laughs> and they said, well, let me read you this. And they thumbed through the Bible and they came to this verse here and they said, truly, truly, Jesus says, 
Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. Where do you stand at the moment, dead or alive? You see, you can't be a bit of both. 